this is David Smith and welcome back to the Horror Cult Films Podcast. Sorry we've been taking so long between episodes again, but our team have had a wide range of changes in our life circumstances. It's not been helped by things like COVID, which have given us all scratchy throats. But we're going to be back together real soon, I assure you, where we're going to be talking all about the Cornell Trilogy. But until then, you're going to have to make do with this mini-sode. And what a mini-sode it is. Today I'm going to be interviewing the wonderful, the fantastic Jane Schoenbrunn. Calling in all the way from Brooklyn, New York, she's here to talk about her feature debut, We're All Going to the World's Fair. It's a fantastic piece of independent horror, and it was one of my top 15 films of 2021 after I was fortunate enough to see it at Grimfest. On that point, please note that I say that I saw it at Glasgow during the interview, but that's fake news. To my knowledge, it never showed there. So, we're all going to the World's Fair is the story of a teenager, Casey, who immerses herself in an online role-playing game. Think of those urban legends you got on Creepypasta or the Candyman story where people do a challenge. The line between reality and fantasy starts to blur, as her body seems to start changing against her will. As she documents her experiences, a mysterious figure reaches out, claiming to see something special in her videos. That's all I'm going to say about it. Please note that across the next half hour, we don't go into any specifics that aren't mentioned in that synopsis. So, we're spoiler free. You can catch this film on digital download from May the 9th and get it on Blu-ray from the 23rd of May. Support independent horror and if you're lucky enough, you can see it at your local cinema. Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's hear from Jane. Hey guys, Casey here. Welcome to my channel. Today I'm going to be taking the World's Fair Challenge. Thank you very much for coming and speaking to uh, Horror Cult Films today. Um, I saw this movie at Glasgow last year and I absolutely loved it. It made my Films of the Year list as well. Something I was wondering, this is a film that's meant to resemble uh, something that you're seeing on your laptop screen. So how how's it been watching that on a big screen? You know, it was actually um, really important to me that, that the movie kind of work uh in a theater um you know that the film i think is is strange in terms of uh the the genre elements of it and that um i don't know that i would call it a horror film it's certainly a film about people who love horror and it's certainly playing with um tones and aesthetics and and certain genre motifs that 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 kind of like a nod to horror or to unpleasant things at the very least but um it's as much to me an, an art film and, and, and very much inspired by like a lot of, um, a lot of slow cinema, a lot, a lot of, um, 
you know, like uh, Asian cinema, contemporary Asian cinema filmmakers like Simon Yang and, um, you know, like uh, Kiarostami, uh, the Iranian filmmaker, I really wanted to make a film that felt transporting dreamlike and trance-like. Um, and, and I think that is represented in, in the more sort of found footage moments of the film, right? They, they kind of are, are all about duration. They're all about lulling you into certain states. Um, but, but the, you know, the, the more cinematic moments in the film are, are similarly, um, I, I, I think all about sound and image and movement. Um, you know, for some moments in the film, we're just watching a character walk through the snow at night with a lantern for, for, for two or three minutes at a time. And I, I think I know enough about how I watch movies to know that that's something that, um, it's, it's a lot easier to be transported by in a movie theater. Um, a, lo- a lot easier to sort of give yourself to the dreamlike experience of um, of of, uh, of of cinema in, in in when when it's dark and there's a giant screen in front of you and um, and 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 it's surrounding you. Um, and that's not to say that I don't also love the experience of people watching it on a laptop, but it was definitely a movie made for the cinema and the idea that people get to watch it in that space now after such a long pandemic is really lovely. Well, absolutely, yeah. It's a it's a welcome return back to the cinemas at the moment. So, I saw in a recent interview, it had this really inspiring quote from I'm just about to totally butcher, where you're saying that when people make films, they're not doing it because they have answers; they're doing it because they have questions, things they want to investigate. And for yourself, what kind of questions did you want to ask yourself with we're all going to the World's Fair? That's a great question. Um... Yeah, I, I, I think I really, I really believe that if, if, um, if my film is successful, you leave it maybe a little frustrated because there's more work to be done, right? Like just as there was more work to be done when I was sitting down to make the film, it, 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 the film is certainly an investigation of a lot of things, but it's not an investigation that leads to firm answers, nor, nor should it be. I think that it's, um, it's trying to express and find language for feelings and ideas and realities or perceived realities of, uh, of my experience in the world and, you know, and, and, and the experience of, um, of people like me perhaps even in the world, but, um, but it's not trying to be prescriptive and tell you and sit you down and give you a lecture on that. It's supposed to sort of, be the beginning of a conversation that you can continue for yourself in your own brain or with friends or on the internet or wherever. Um, you know, for me, it's a film, uh, very much about, um, uh, a, a, a word, you know, but when I started working on the movie, I, I didn't know this word yet. Um, and that word is dysphoria. Um, it's a film about growing up, uh, on, on the internet as a teenager and feeling, unreal um feeling like uh, a sense of frustration and a sense of your life not being your own a sense of unreality that you can't quite grasp um and so you go looking for it in spaces that are decontextualized from you know both your body but also from the world um and it's about the relationship between tr- truth and fiction which is uh, obviously something that both on the internet and in, in real life is, is complicated in the ways in which we use fiction to explore ourselves and to explore darker impulses that we might have um, in a safe space or a safer space. And it's about the ways in which we relate to one another 
in our changing world. And the way that our world is changing, I think perhaps above all other ways is through this strange box, glowing box that we spend so much of our time engaged with. Absolutely. And this kind of tension between trying to use a, by its very nature, kind of artificial medium to try and forge authentic relationships. There's something very tragic about the film with this sort of a dramatic irony, I suppose, of where the audience will make certain suppositions about the relationship between the two characters in a way that uh, goes beyond what uh, Casey's understanding of the situation was. I was wondering with Casey, how did you audition that role? Because you've got an absolutely incredible performance there out of Cobb. But I was wondering like, if there's a particular bit that you tried her on first or if there was, uh, you know, or did you just get to know her and then build, and then build a character with her? Yeah, I, I, when I write a character, I, I try to write um, the character 70% fully realized on, on the page because I, I think I'm hyper aware that my ideal creative process is is one of collaboration and is one of not trying to fit reality into the box that you're trying to fit into it into but to collaborate with reality and collaborate in this case specifically with an incredibly talented specific individual performer that was something that was very much invited in um yeah, when we saw Anna's tape and got to know Anna, it just became immediately clear that she was an extremely special person and that even though she was incredibly different than Casey as as a, as a human being, she had this charisma and um and and personality and just like deep complicated um depth that made it so clear that this was somebody that you could dig with um to f- to find the depths of this character who is also very complicated. Um, she's also just an enormously talented performer with an incredible gift and has an incredibly disciplined work ethic. So, so much of the process, and there was a months long process of preparing for the shoot so that she could feel comfortable to disappear into the role in the way that you see in the film. So much of that process was about finding a common language between the two of us and merging my idea of who this character was with, um, with, with who she was and what she was interested in exploring as an artist and performer. One small thing, apologies if my cat suddenly starts meowing. I thought the door was closed. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice to have the company. But uh, yeah, her performance is really, it's, it's, it's a very fearless performance. I'm thinking particularly of a bit where we just got her dancing for an almost uncomfortably long time on the screen. I was thinking like, character, but you, you want to give her a hug. You want to, re- you want to reassure her. But at the same time, like I like that this wasn't necessarily played for pity. You know, it was, it was just her doing her thing, basically. I really like the idea that, um, and I think it is a, a core idea to the internet, that you're maybe not sure what to feel at any given moment when you're watching this character. And the character who is very much performing, for the majority of the film, she's very much aware of the camera's presence, or if not our camera's presence, a camera's presence. Um, this character is, um, is, is, is trying to express something about herself. There's a reason that that camera is on and that she's recording herself. She wants us to see something. And so in that way, it is a very like ambiguous and ambivalent thing. And, and my favorite moments in the film, of which that dance scene is, of course, one of them, are the moments when um, you're not sure whether you should be terrified, sad, or laughing. Um, I, I, I love any kind of moment in cinema that can confuse your brain and heart in that way, almost collapse like a binary of like, this is sad, this is happy, or this is scary, or this is, this is romantic. 
And, uh, and I think the character, I think Casey is chasing that as well. Because this film is only just coming out, we'll see today for when this goes up in print. I'm going to avoid spoilers of this question here, uh, or I'll edit around any, but me and my cousin both had uh, differing opinions on the ending of the film, and this is going to the mystery that we're talking about there, about how seriously to take a particular story that gets told. For yourself, was there a lot of aspects of the story that you had entirely figured out that you went, I'm just going to, I'm not going to include that? Like the, like the sort of origins of this phrase, we're all going to the world's fair, remains fairly obscure throughout the whole thing. I guess I was wondering if a lot of this was, was like by design, we're not going to learn it, or was that to yourself still quite obscure? I mean, I, I did literally write a 10 page fake Wikipedia page overviewing the history of the World's Fair Challenge. Um, I, I, there's a David Lynch quote that I really like um, where he says that um, the mystery should feel like the answer is waiting for you somewhere in the next room over. Um, and I, I really love that because it feels really true to life and it feels really true to especially like falling into communities and strange places on the internet that when you first land there, you can tell that there is a logic, but that logic is perhaps oblique and overly complicated. And so the, the, the sort of like mythology of the film and this creepypasta that all of these people are participating in and have been for years, right? Like the saturation and, and inherent schizophrenia of all of these voices on the internet collaboratively creating a narrative has to feel like that. We have to sort of feel a little bit lost. Um, and so this was very much intentional. But beyond that, beyond the mythology and the origins of the sort of uh, the game of, of uh, you know, that the characters are playing in the film, it was also really important to me that the margins of the film be very precise um, and, 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 and for very motivated and specific reasons. I wanted to make a film that felt truthful to the experience of using the Internet and truthful to the experience of relationships on the Internet um, and a lot of uh, context gets lost in that space. Um, it can be really hard to know who is telling the truth and who's fucking with you. It can be really hard to know who uh, is going to be there tomorrow. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a space that um, invites a lot of ambivalence and ambiguity. And, and I wanted to make a film that was truthful to that rather than trying to water that down to a cinematic narrative language. And when you're dealing with something like uh, something uh, as subject to change as the internet, was for a lot of watching other people vlog and stuff just so that it came across as authentic as opposed to, uh, you know, just uh, remembering, you know, that sort of meme of hello, fellow kids, and uh, how someone manages to avoid falling into that trap when covering something like like social media. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is that I I I, I felt strongly that I I didn't want to sort of situate the movie in a in too specific a time period, and the movie is so sort of dreamlike and impressionistic that I, I one of my early rules for myself was that this wasn't supposed to be a quote unquote realistic portrayal of the internet. This was supposed to be a portrayal of 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 like my gaze on the internet, and as such, it's as much a gaze on the internet of my youth and the sort of grainy. 56k dial-up version of the internet pre-YouTube that I grew up with, as it is also speaking about the sort of heyday of early YouTube when creepypasta was at its height, as much as it's talking about the sort of um, 
you know, uh, clusterfuck of social media algorithm logic that, that we're, we're all sort of unpacking now as, as a, as, as a world, um, on the internet, uh, in 2022. But I also, um, I really, I really wanted to make a movie that felt like it was not speaking down to the internet. I think when you watch a lot of films about the internet, they're not necessarily made by people who grew up on the internet or who needed the internet and desired to be on the internet. And I am very much a person who spent a good deal of their emotional energy in these sorts of spaces. Um, And so I, I, I really, it felt so important to me that the film not be kind of like, pastiche or, or parody or, um, or looking down on these, these communities. Um, one very tangible way that I address that is working with a lot of the actual people who are involved in the creepypasta movement. Whenever possible, we were working with real people in a very collaborative way. There are entire scenes in the film that are shot by other people that are shot by essentially YouTubers who are making the kinds of content that the film is speaking about. And it, it, um, you know, I, I think overall, the, the the nightmare scenario for me was that the film feel like one of those Hollywood movies where, you know, they're shooting on a really fancy camera and pretending like it's a selfie and it's some Hollywood actor doing their impression of another Hollywood actor's impression of YouTube. And um, if this film is going to work, it had to feel like a transmission from the genuine Internet. Uh, we're talking about, we're talking a moment ago about collaboration, and I, I saw that you've done a lot of collaborative work in the past, including something that sounded so cool, this project about uh, filmmakers interpreting each other's dreams. And I was wondering how it's been kind of finding your own voice as a filmmaker uh, following a period of working with a lot of other people. Sort of a non-traditional path, but one that I, I think really like set me up to think really deeply about my own voice as an artist. Um I do think a lot of it was insecurity and insecurity that was accentuated by um, the fact that I hadn't come out to myself yet as trans. And that's so much of um, my identity was something that I was pushing down and that I wasn't ready to um, speak about as myself, as an artist. The process of coming out to myself and figuring out my voice and identity as an artist um, was, was very much tied up in the process of figuring out what my first feature as a director should be. But the work I was doing before then was, yeah, perhaps less traditional in terms of like, I didn't make a lot of like narrative shorts in the same world with crews building up to making my first feature. But I did do um, a ton of work immersing myself in, uh, especially like DIY alternative micro budget film scenes um, in New York and across America regionally. Um, you know, I, I work at various uh, film organizations in my 20s, meeting young filmmakers who are all in their own way kind of confronting this, um, this big, I'd say, problem that we have in America, which is the tension between being an artist who wants to make personal work and being somebody who has to make that work within a commercial system that's... Um, looking primarily to like a bottom line of profit, um, you know, and in our late capitalist current day that, um, that that's quite a tension. I found a lot of filmmakers, collaborators, uh, artists who I was just a huge fan of who I learned from and who I watched go through this process of making early work and growing as an artist. And, and I think both finding my voice through the work that I was really drawn towards and also finding 
a, a real understanding of the realities of trying to make art in a commercial landscape. Um, the, you know, this was an invaluable, like kind of decade of, um, of, of apprenticeship before I was ready emotionally to sort of commit to, to make, making my own work. Yeah, because I was thinking with uh, horror movies in the last few years in particular, um, I think we've seen from the mainstream movies maybe more of a conscious attempt to try and do films that uh, sort of address social issues or, or or sort of celebrate aspects of outsiderdom. But it's something that's been going on, in the, on the independent circuit for absolutely decades. Do you think that um, from a mainstream horror perspective, we're still a long time away from seeing a mainstream horror film that deals with trans issues? No, I, 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 I mean, I, I assume that Hollywood is trying to commodify transness, just like Hollywood is trying to commodify everything in the world. I suspect that um, if you did see like a, a, a big budget mainstream Hollywood horror film, or I guess as the term is now called social thriller, um, in the vein of like a get out um, about trans issues, it would be like... Um, you know, dysphoria as the metaphor is like a ghost or a monster tracking people and you have to defeat it. I'm pretty bored by this. I love Get Out, but I'm pretty bored by contemporary commercial horror because it feels, um, yes, it's about letting new voices speak, but it's about letting them speak in a very rigid and conservative form. Um, still adapting to what I think was a language of of, um, of narrative cinema um, that, that was created um, by, you know, the, the people in, in charge of a power structure and in terms of like in, in charge of a, of a white supremacist, capitalist, male-driven power structure. Um, I'm much more interested than like, it, it, it seems to me, I guess I should say, that the question of how you can authentically express a trans experience through the language of cinema inherently has to involve expanding cinematic language or at the very least rewriting and evolving genre conventions. Um, and as much as I'm happy to see minorities and especially queer and trans filmmakers getting fledgling attention from people with the resources and money to let you know, those, 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 those voices reach out into the world. I am quite, uh, quite hesitant to, to get too optimistic about it because I think that those voices get watered down by a power structure. That's not sharing the goal of speaking authentically and envisioning new worlds and new experiences through the language of cinema. I completely agree. And I think actually that the authentic voice is the one that I should have specified because I'm thinking about when, uh, People talk about like BBC or even worse, Disney or Netflix to talk about in terms of, oh, have they got too woke? And you're like, well, Disney is a company. If they are, if they're, if they're a particularly woke company, they're very, very bad at it on the grounds. You're looking at a company that's yet to have a, uh, an LGBT protagonist in anything. Um, and we, and which has also also managed to make a film on the land, on the lands where genocide was happening. But at the same time, it strikes me as uh, in the kind of in speech marks as a culture wars time, there seems to be such a sort of pushback against any form of uh, of diversity and inclusion, which then seems to be always oh, an agenda becomes the uh, follow up. Just feels like you get 
too deep into this conversation and all of a sudden you're just speaking a language that feels so far and from the way that I perceive and understand my, my place in the world, right? Like whether someone is or some business, giant capitalist business entity is woke or not woke is like this binary question that has nothing to do with my lived experience in the world. My lived experience in the world is like I'm looking around and I see a power structure and a society and a culture that feels like it's breeding inequality and injustice and spaces where people who want to express themselves with autonomy and freedom are being hunted down and, 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 and made to, uh, to, 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 to fear for, for themselves and, and, and mask themselves from the world. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm an artist. I, I want to explore these things in work in really, um, complex personal ways. I don't want to give people answers about things. I want to start conversations that feel emotionally truthful to me. And you hope that by doing that, you're doing some form of care work, right? You're helping articulate experiences that have been previously unarticulated. Just feels so different to me from, I just feel so alienated by any kind of conversation about like wokeness or, um, you know, or PC culture. It feels like these, these words invented by bad actors to keep us in boxes and keep us from expanding our understanding and expanding our ability to live in a world that feels exciting. I've seen you uh, talk elsewhere about how during the process of writing this film, you were, you were also uh, using the film to sort of explore your own gender identity. And something I'm wondering about is this sort of, this process of exploring yourself through the art that you create. Because, you know, obviously the art that you create is always going to be a projection of your of of yourself, but at the same time, how do you also then learn from the things that you're putting out that you're putting out there that you're putting on the page? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I think it all starts from a creative practice. It starts from developing a ideally daily practice as an artist through which you are translating the things that you're trying to explore into art, into something that is speaking through whatever medium you're trying to speak through in a way that is going to resonate in the way that you're hoping that it resonates. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I, and I think it starts with this like um, flicker of a flame. You know, it, it starts with really going deep inside yourself and asking yourself, like, what is the what is the most visceral obsession or the most authentic way of articulating the thing that feels like I need to articulate. Um, it is a very vague academic or, or um, vague answer because you're talking, I'm talking about things that I think like language doesn't necessarily exist to, to, to explain. But, um, but I think it starts from this place of like finding your voice, finding a way to project your perception, the inside of your brain out of your brain so that other people can understand it and hopefully find comfort or see themselves within it. And, um, and you have to start small. I think you just have to like chase, um, chase 
chase that chase trying to make visible something that feels invisible um to take something out of your brain and onto a screen um in small small ways and once you learn to do that and find that first sort of um flicker you can grow the flame and you could grow um the the language um and you could start speaking in, on bigger uh canvases and you you can start to understand how this infinitely deep process of trying to articulate the infinite complexities of the human experience in this medium of light and sound and time, uh, you can start to understand the ways in which that can evolve and grow as you evolve and grow your practice. And that's just always going to be deeply personal Um, and deeply personal in different ways, right? Like I'm now two years into my physical transition. And when I was doing this process on World's Fair, I I hadn't even realized I was trans yet. And so I'm such a different person that my language is evolving as my life evolves. Um, My interests maybe are, are still the same. I'm still interested in speaking. I'm still staring at the same flame. Um, but it's just it's 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 from a different perspective or it's 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 glowing in a different way now. Finally, you mentioned bigger canvases a moment ago. Uh, have you got a, got a particular piece of work in the pipeline at the moment? Yeah, we're five weeks out from uh, from prep on on my new film, which is so exciting. It's uh, it's a much bigger film. It's called um, I Saw the TV Glow. Oh, that's a beautiful title again. It's uh, I'm doing it with A24 um, and uh, it's being produced by Emma Stone and Dave McCary's Fruit Tree Productions. Um, It's about these kids who are obsessed with the scary TV show and then um, they grow up and that scary TV show continues to have strange impacts on their life. And uh, and yeah, we'll we'll shoot it this summer. It's um, it's it's almost like working in a completely different medium. It's so cool to get to have the resources to make monsters and to do some crane shots and explore, like I said, the same flame, but in a much, um, much expanded canvas. Really. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, David. And thank everybody at home for joining us too. Bye. Films.co.uk by White Bat Audio.